Please join me in welcoming Dean Jeffries, Professor Ortiz, and Mr. Canaparo. Well, thank you uh, all very much for the invitation. It's a real pleasure to be here. And it's so good to see people interested in legal discussion on such a beautiful uh, day. Uh, that's assuming that you're not here just for the Chick-fil-A at the end. Now, I'll be talking about two cases, uh, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, uh, the same-sex adoption case, and Brnovich versus Democratic National Committee, the Arizona voting rights uh, case. Uh, the first was a free exercise case, and the second, a vote, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act uh, case. Fulton uh, first. Uh, the it's the latest of a whole string of sex versus religion cases. Think of them that way. Uh, that's not the technical doctrine, of course, but I think that's the way the public, at least, tends to uh, view them. And it has uh, culture war uh, written all over it, and it attracted perhaps the most public interest, I think, of any case uh, last term. If not, like going in, if not, it was right up there uh, near the top. Now, the facts are pretty simple. Uh, Philadelphia stopped referring children to the Catholic Social Services uh, Foster Care uh, Agency. Uh, because it refused on religious grounds to certify same-sex couples as appropriate foster uh, parents. CSS would instead refer uh, same-sex couples to other foster care agencies in the city, uh, which would certify them in appropriate cases. Now, the city ruled that uh, such refusals to certify violated the non-discrimination provision in the foster care contract itself and also a city-wide fair practices uh, ordinance. CSS uh, sued, uh, arguing that booting it from the foster care program violated its free exercise rights. The city said no, because a case called Employment Division versus Smith had held that neutral and generally applicable regulations were fine, not subject to strict scrutiny. And then CSS said, well, then overrule Smith. It's about ties, bad decision uh, anyway. Now, Smith, uh, which was written by Justice Scalia, had come in uh, for some criticism by many free exercise proponents from the moment it came down. And in fact, it led to the uh, enactment of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So there's kind of congressional partial, maybe partial overruling, at least pushback. Uh, and although the case engaged the public's interest because of its context, again, sex versus religion, it was the continuing validity of Smith that was of legal interest. Now, this was a real big deal, not only in defining the borders of the culture wars, but in determining when religious belief entitled one to exemptions more generally. So the stakes here going in were pretty large. Surprise, when the opinion came down, uh, though, all nine justices, the liberals and conservatives alike, agreed that booting CSS from the program was unconstitutional. Wow, you say, how is that possible? It's a pretty, you know, uh, hard group of people to get together on controversial things. Now, you might think that the agreement would make the case even bigger and more important. Wrong, okay? The court's unanimity instead reflected the fact that the court refused to take on the Smith issue, the, every, the one issue that everyone thought that the case was teeing up to the court. Because Philadelphia allowed discretionary exceptions, uh, the court found, its approach wasn't generally applicable. So it didn't come under the Smith approach. Remember, you had to be neutral and generally uh, applicable. 
Therefore, even under Smith, strict scrutiny uh, applied and it fell. Chief Justice Roberts wrote a 15-page opinion, which Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, Kagan, Kavanaugh, and Barrett joined. That's a pretty surprising bunch right there. Now, Justice Barrett then wrote a two-page concurring opinion saying that she was troubled by Smith, but also troubled by what might replace it. Should she ask, we, quote, swap Smith's categorical anti-discrimination approach with an equally categorical test, uh, categorical strict scrutiny regime? What would happen under such an approach, she wondered, to many, quote unquote, garden variety laws. And then she cited a part of the Smith opinion where Justice Scalia had referenced things like requiring military service or the payment of taxes, health and safety regulations such as manslaughter and child neglect laws, compulsory vaccination laws, drug laws, traffic laws, social welfare legislation like minimum wage laws and things like uh, that. Now, Justice Kavanaugh joined her whole opinion, and Justice Breyer joined all but the first paragraph. Uh, Justice Alito uh, wrote a concurrence in the judgment, which, you know, which was 77 pages. Right? That's over five times as long as Chief Justice Roberts' majority opinion. And he got Justices Thomas and Gorsuch on board. He lambasted uh, the court for not overruling uh, Smith, Quote, he said, quote, after receiving more than 2,500 pages of briefing and more than a half year of post-argument cogitation, the court has emitted a wisp of a decision that leaves religious liberty in a confused and vulnerable state. Justice Gorsuch then wrote a 10-page concurrence in the judgment joined by Justices Thomas and Alito, underlying how hard the court had worked to avoid the Smith question. Clear he wanted to try to embarrass the Chief Justice and his fellow travelers for what they had done in ducking the issue. Now, those of you who know this area well will easily see a pattern here. The court, or many members of it, will invite litigation in an area, grant a case, get everyone excited and exercised about it, and then go out of its way to avoid deciding the big issue. Well, one of the Little Sister of the Poor cases is like this. Uh, the Masterpiece case, Cake piece is like this. And now we have Fulton. So I want to leave you with two questions about the case. One, what's up with that? Why does that continue to happen? Why is the court like constantly teasing us, if you will, that it's going to come, you know, enter this area and reorganize it in a kind of dramatic way? Is the worry about where they might end up, as Justice Barrett suggested? Possible, I guess. Are there fractures in the alliances on the court that only become apparent after the case is granted? I guess that's possible, of course. Or, and I want to suggest this is a more interesting possibility, no idea how likely it is, is the court, like the proverbial dog, wondering whether it should still chase the car now that it knows it can catch it, all right? And now, so think of that also from the public's perspective or from the perspective of the groups that are litigating in this area. Would a big win in these cases be good for religious organizations in the long run? Now, in one sense, that seems to be a no-brainer. Uh, no but if religions press increasingly broad exemptions from laws that a large portion of the public views as protecting people's freedom, wonder how public attitudes towards religion itself will uh, will change. 
Uh, so I just want to leave you with those two questions, and I'll turn over uh, to things to Giancarlo for his talking about one case, and then we'll rotate through for another round. Did you want your questions now? No, no, no. Okay. Um, so I'm going to talk about, well, a few things, but I'm, so it was hard for me to pick cases to settle on. So I picked two cases and like a theme that sort of uh, distills itself from this um, these cases. But one thing I wanted to mention at the outset is sort of the, the golden age of judicial agreeableness that we find ourselves in at the moment. At the end of the term, I went back and looked at uh, of the merits cases, what, what are, what's the breakdown between the justices? And 44% are unanimous, which is much higher than the historical average. Um, Two-thirds of all cases have no more than two justices in, in dissent, and we have found you know, this term, last term, the term before, some of the most unusual combinations of justices uh, joining, joining opinions, five fours that don't split any way that you would have predicted. Uh, and when you, when you try to look at those cases that involve what you might call a, a political <coughs> issue, right, that, that resonate outside of the law and into the, the realms of politics, and then you look at those cases that split by uh, you know, a, the appointing president, or if you, know, you, you might lump the chief justice in with the liberals at times. Uh, those are only at most 11% of uh, the court's docket this term, which surprised me, you know, because I'm at this at, in, in two times, right? I'm consuming the information from the court, and then I'm consuming the information about the court from the press, and you don't get the same uh, impression uh, from those two sources, which was just a fun sort of thing to note. Um, so the first case I want to talk about is Cedar Point Nursery versus Hasid, and this was a challenge to a California law that allowed uh, union organizers to enter on, the, the phrase was take access to farmland uh, without the permission of the owner up to three hours a day, 120 days a year in order to attempt to organize uh, the laborers on the land. And the uh, challengers said that this was a per se taking under the Fifth Amendment uh, through the 14th. Um, and uh, the court agreed in a 6-3 a opinion uh, with the chief writing the opinion. And it was a really interesting opinion. Um, well, let me get, get to what he said, right? So um, he says that, so he starts, interestingly enough, with sort of a first principles foundational approach, quotes that John Adams quote, we all know property must be secured uh, or liberty won't exist. Uh, goes through the history of uh, regulatory versus per se takings, the importance of physical trespasses on property, the distinction between the government physically trespassing on property and then the government granting somebody else the ability to physically take access to property. Um, and then um, into the, um, the all importance of right, the right to exclude as a fundamental uh, right in that bundle of sticks that is property. Uh, and so he says, look, this is a physical trespass. Um, it's not, it is, so it's a per se taking. We're not going to get into the business of, is it you know, enough? Is it too much? Is it a regulatory taking? Uh, you've taken away the property owner's uh, right to exclude. And so it's a per se taking. Compensation must be owed. Now, it's, it's a dramatic opinion in, in a couple ways. Number one, it's a pretty radical departure from uh, historical sort of balancing approaches, trying to draw the line when a taking is and isn't regulatory. Uh, it represents a, a pretty big step and a shift we've seen over the last few years towards bringing property rights onto a more equal footing with life and liberty. Um, much to the consternation or joy of you know, various people, depending on where you fall, 
to those who are very upset at the opinion, uh, I would say, you know, there's an out, right? You could still take it if you pay for it. Uh, so, you know, there's some uh, uh, harm mitigation there if you're concerned uh, from that point of view. Um, and then we had a dissent by Breyer, which was very interesting. And Breyer said, uh, look, it's, it's, it, unless it's a 365-day-a-year trespass, it's not a taking. Um, and uh, it's essentially because and the phrase he used is, uh, some invasion is necessary uh, for the government to regulate our complex world, is the phrase, uh, is the phrase he used. And it struck me as something of an anachronistic opinion in a way, uh, because it, it's, um, and the chief puts this really well, right? This is, this is the debate between two visions that have been going on in the law over time, right? The one says that you know, a right enshrined in the Constitution is inviolable. The other says that you know, some give, there must be some give uh, for the government to regulate our increasingly complex world. And you have this exact, uh, this exact debate payout in Nolan, Loretto, and Cusby. Um, and, uh, and what Breyer does is very interesting in that the opinion is sort of, uh, it doesn't pretend to be, to, to, a, to, a, to articulate really an objective standard beyond Breyer's own judgment about what is and what isn't um, too far. And the reason that that strikes me as sort of anachronistic is because with the trend towards originalism and textualism, even if you don't subscribe to those, we've seen that even judges who don't try to justify their opinions in terms of sort of objective standards, some external constraint on themselves. It's, it's sort of what you even saw in Breyer's book, Active Liberty, is an attempt to, to articulate an external constraint on his own judicial vision. But in this case, it strikes me that Breyer sort of abandons that and harkens back to an older time when that pursuit of objectivity wasn't necessary. Uh, so that's sort of my two bits on Cedar Point. Worth what you pay for it. <laughs> John? Do you mind if I stay? Not at all. I'm used to standing, so if you don't mind if I do. Um, I want to thank the Federal Society uh, for asking me here. Uh, as you may have heard, I was away from the law school for three years, and it is enormously gratifying to know that the Federalists, at least, uh, know I exist. Uh, I assure you that puts you ahead of many of my junior colleagues. Um, I also need to apologize to the Federalist Society for not playing ball. I was asked to talk about uh, maybe three decisions. I'm going to talk about two. I was asked to talk about things from the last term of the court. I'd like to start off with ex parte young, decided in 1908. Uh, ex parte young is a canonical citation for the power of federal courts to enjoin violations of the federal constitution. It was a suit bought by shareholders for railroad against uh, the Attorney General of Minnesota, Mr. Young, alleging that the state law had set the railroad rates so low that they were confiscatory and therefore unconstitutional under the doctrine at that time. Now, there was concern uh, that state sovereign immunity, as encapsulated or revived or memorialized by the 11th Amendment, would prohibit an order striking down a state statute. 
And ex parte Young came up with a way of describing that that validated suits against states by naming a state officer. In other words, you sue the state to enjoin the statute, but you name the attorney general or the head of the law enforcement agency or the head of the regulatory agency or some other state officer. And from that time till this, the federal constitution has been enforced by injunctive relief against states in the name of state officers. Now comes, te comes Texas, which in its wisdom has decided to prohibit abortion, essentially all abortions. Uh, Texas may hope and expect, uh, as many others hope and or expect, that the Supreme Court will overrule Roe versus Wade and allow prohibition of abortion. Uh, that may happen. Uh, it may not happen. It hasn't happened yet. And until it does, under the precedents as they exist as we speak here today, the Texas statute is flagrantly, dramatically, incontestably unconstitutional. So what would you expect to happen? Well, ordinarily, if Texas adopted a flagrantly unconstitutional law, somebody with an interest in the matter, and there are many, would go to court, sue the Texas Attorney General, they would get a preliminary injunction against enforcement of the statute, any federal judge would grant that, and hold the matter until the case had been adjudicated, and the case would be adjudicated and the statute struck down, unless it happened to be the case that the Supreme Court used to change the underlying law. Anticipating exactly that outcome, which would be obvious, quick, and free from doubt, Texas did something that was very clever. They provided that no state officer at any level would have any role in enforcing the anti-abortion statute. Not the attorney general, not the law enforcement, not any state regulator of health, no one. Well, if no state official can enforce the statute, how can the statute be enforced? Texas created a system of bounty hunters. Any resident of Texas can sue to attack an abortion provider or someone who abets in the provision of an abortion and is awarded a $10,000 fee for every successful abortion prevented. Now, if this sounds strange and unfamiliar, it should. There has never been anything remotely like it. It is wholly unprecedented. Not admirable in my view, but very clever. And what's the purpose of this bizarre scheme? It is to circumvent ex parte young. If no state officer can enforce the Texas abortion statute, then perhaps no state officer can be enjoined from enforcing the Texas abortion statute. And maybe the Texas abortion statute gets to operate despite its invalidity because of the absence of a conventional target for injunctive relief. Texas hopes that ex parte young would be unavailable and that by the time the statute is actually enforced by one of the millions of Texans who can bring such an action, that an injunction against that one individual will not disturb, deter the next one, and that by this device, the institution of judicial review will be circumvented. So an abortion provider 
in Texas went to the courts to enjoin or stay the Texas law, naming as a defendant a judge in Texas, saying somebody is going to enforce this statute, not directly to bring the action, but a judge will have to decide the case to award the $10,000. And the Supreme Court in a 5-4 to four decision declined to issue the stay, letting the law stand, at least for now. It's called Whole Woman's Health versus Jackson. It was decided by an order on September 1 of this year. 5-4, each of the four dissenters descended from the bench. Now I'm going to make some harsh comments about this decision, but I wish to be clearly understood that these comments are not based not at all based on my opinion of Roe versus Wade. For many of you, and for many of the people whom I read in the newspapers, this was an abortion case. I see it differently. For me, it's a rule of law case. By adopting the bizarre scheme of barring all enforcement by state officials, Texas hopes both to act unconstitutionally under the law as it stands, and to prevent judicial review of its unconstitutional actions. This is a direct attack on American constitutionalism, on the institution of judicial review, and the rule of law. And I put it to you that no matter what you think about abortion or Roe versus Wade, we should all be united in condemning this attack on the rule of law. Now let me return for a second to Ex parte Young. Everyone knows that case for the proposition that you can enjoin states. But there was also a ruling on the merits. Ex parte Young involved a constitutional challenge, today it seems quite anachronistic, to railroad rates set by statute. And the law at the time was you can set the rates, but they have to allow some fair return on the capital of the railroad. You can't just take the railroad by setting rates at a confiscatory level. That was the claim. Now, to determine whether that claim was valid, whether the rates were or were not confiscatory, you would have had to examine the cost structure of the railroad and exactly what the rates were and how much they could recover and what service of the debt that recoveries allowed, et cetera, et cetera. There's a complicated financial and economic analysis necessary to conclude whether rates by the standards of 1908 were or were not confiscatory. The Supreme Court did none of that. It made no analysis of that sort in Ex parte Young. Neither did it order any other court to do so. The Supreme Court in Ex parte Young struck down the Minnesota statute on its face without regard to whether the rates were confiscatory or not. Why would it do such a thing? Well, it's because Minnesota had piled up criminal penalties. This is a low-rent regulatory statute that's going to be applied a thousand times a day to the rate of every single passenger. And the state piled up criminal penalties against everyone who charged a rate in excess of what was allowed. And the Supreme Court decided that what Minnesota was really doing by enforcing this rate statute with major criminal penalties, 
It was trying to intimidate anyone from going to court to challenge the rape statute because they would be guilty of a crime if they did so. And no mechanism existed for challenging the event in advance, say through declaratory judgment. And the Supreme Court said in Ex Parte Young, whether the rates are confiscatory or not, we don't know, we don't say. But the attempt to construct a statute that precludes judicial review, that's unconstitutional. Now it seems to me we should take a lesson from Ex Parte Young. That court found a way to prevent state lawlessness, and this court should too. In its order denying relief, signed by, uh, joined by five justices, not signed by any, the court said that the stay application presented complex and novel procedural questions. And that's perfectly fair. It did present complex and novel procedural questions. The courts ordinarily, historically, enjoin officers. When there are no enforcing officers, can the court just enjoin the state itself? Kind of a new question. Can they enjoin state judges under the authority of ex parte young? That's not at all standard practice. It's, it's a new, novel, procedural question. Now, these are indeed novel procedural questions, and they may perhaps be difficult, but that's why they're the Supreme Court. And taking a powder in the face of a direct attack on judicial review is not the answer. The court should have heeded the Chief Justice's wide admonition to give preliminary relief to preserve the status quo ante before the law went into effect so that the courts would have an opportunity to consider whether Texas could adopt an anti-abortion statute and avoid responsibility for it, as they have tried to do here. But the Supreme Court did not take that advice, and their failure to do so their willingness to allow this statute to go into effect gives rise to a suspicion. I hope it's ill-founded. A suspicion that the majority is so eager to get rid of the abortion right that they're willing to throw the rule of law over the side to do it. I hope that's not true. But at this point, I have to tell you, I do not know. This issue will come back. When it does, let's hope wiser heads and stronger spines prevail. Right. Well, thank you, John. <laughs> so my, uh, my second case and last case is uh, the Arizona voting rights case, which I'm sure many of you uh, have heard about. And Brnovich uh, versus Democratic National Committee basically concerned two particular provisions of Arizona uh, law. First, uh, Arizonans who vote in person on election day in a county that uses electoral precincts had to vote in the precinct to which their address assigned them. If they voted in the wrong precinct, the vote was just not counted. And second, Arizona made it a crime for any person other than a postal worker, an election official, a voter's caregiver, family member, or household member to knowingly collect an early ballot uh, before or after it was completed. So first I want, to, uh, I want to be clear about exactly what was going on here. 
At oral argument, uh, Justice Barrett asked the uh, Republican National Committee's lawyer, quote, what's the interest of the Arizona RNC here in keeping, say, the out-of-precinct ballot disqualification rules on the books? To which the lawyer, in a moment of breathtaking honesty, replied, because it puts us at a competitive disadvantage relative to Democrats. Politics is a zero-sum game. It's the difference between winning an election 50 to 49 and losing an election 51 to 50. Now, his arithmetic's a little bit suspect, right? But I think you'll get the point. Indeed, in the last, year, last year's presidential election, the vote was 49.36% Democrat and 49.06% Republican. Interesting. Seems to be one of the numbers uh, uh, Mr. Carvin was talking about. And perhaps that was what he was thinking about uh, at the time. Uh, We'll see, though, you know, after the Arizona Senate announces the results of its forensic audit, whether we have different numbers uh, to deal with. The DNC sued, challenging both provisions under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And it argued that both provisions were enacted with a discriminatory intent and therefore independently violated Section 2 and the 15th Amendment. But it also more centrally made the argument that it violated the so-called results test, which I'll walk you through in a minute. The district court rejected both the results test claim and the intent claim. A Ninth Circuit panel affirmed the district court, uh, but then a mini en banc of the Ninth Circuit uh, reversed. Now, here you need a little bit of background of the Voting Rights Act uh, to understand what's going on. So bear with me while I sort of pull you through section two of the statute and explain its historical background. Now, the Voting Rights Act was enacted in 1965 before the court had made intent a central part of equal protection analysis. In 1980, the court decided a case called City of Mobile versus Bolden, in which a plurality of four justices would have held that Section 2 added nothing to the 15th Amendment, and that unlike that, and that like the 14th Amendment, it required a showing of discriminatory intent. Congress then decided to amend Section 2 to make it clear that it didn't require intent. The House passed the bill, a bill which added what is now Section 2A of the Voting Rights Act. And instead of outlawing any requirement or procedure that, quote, denies or abridges the right to vote on account of race or color, as the original version of Section 2 did, and that was the bit that they were interpreting uh, in Mobile versus uh, uh, Bolden, uh, the new Section 2A outlawed any requirement or procedure, quote, which results in a denial or abridgment of the right of any citizen to vote on account of race or color. Now, that is the so-called results test, and it was thought that the House version of it would outlaw any procedure requirement that had discriminatory effects. Okay. So the Senate resisted this approach. And they reached an eventual compromise, which added Section 2B. It left section, proposed Section 2A in the bill unchanged, but then it added Section 2B. And it's a little bit long, but I'll read it to you, so you can, because this is the bit that Justice Alito uh, worked with. A violation of subsection A is established if, based on the totality of the circumstances, it is shown that the political process leading to nomination or election in the state or political subdivision are not equally open to participation by members of a class of citizens protected by subsection A, in that its members have less opportunity than other members of the electorate to 
participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. The extent to which members of a protected class have been elected to office in the state or political subdivision is one circumstance which may be considered, provided that nothing in this section establishes a right to have members of a protected class elected in numbers equal to their proportion in the population. So it was thought, 2B was thought to have two critical parts. The totality of the circumstances test, which told you what you could look at, seems pretty encompassing, you know, totality of the circumstances, and the so-called dull proviso, with that's the bit that ruled out any requirement of proportional racial representation. Now the Senate report, and these, remember, these were the days when the courts paid attention to legislative history, made clear what the totality of the circumstances consisted of. And I'll just read you some of them. The history of voted-related discrimination, the extent of racial polarization, the use of voting practices that tend to enhance opportunities for discrimination, whether minority candidates have been denied access to any candidate slating process, uh, the extent to which minorities have borne the effects of past discrimination in relation to education, employment, health, whether local political campaigns have used overt or subtle racial appeals, the extent to which minority group members have been elected to public office, the responsiveness of public officials to the particular needs of minority groups, and whether the policy underlying the use of the voting qualifications is tenuous. Now note one really, really, really interesting thing about all those factors. Not one of them goes to intent, right? They're all about results, discrimination in education in the past, you know, that kind of stuff. And they came from a 1973 Supreme Court case called White versus Regester. So what was happening was that the Senate report was basically saying, listen, this is how you did things before intent was a requirement in equal protection. That's what we want to do now going forward. And it was decided, White versus Regester was decided three years before Washington versus Davis, the case which established equal protection's intent requirement. Now, President Reagan signed the Voting Rights Act Amendment 1982 on June 29, 1982. Two days later, the Supreme Court decided another case called Rogers versus Lodge, which was a follow-up to Mobile versus Bolden. But this time, seven justices held that intent was required to prove a constitutional violation. So it took the plurality's position from before on that but, 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 it said, it applied the register factors to prove them. So it said, yeah, you have to have intent, but you use these factors, none of which really bears on intent, to prove intent. In other words, intent is required, but you can prove it by not satisfying it, all right? Uh, so the, those were the same factors that Section 2's totality of the circumstances test seems to require. So, Question, you know, what was going on here? Was all the huffing and puffing around the 1982 amendments unnecessary? Did Congress actually not need to pass them at all because the Supreme Court was going to take this opposition just two days later after the president signed the law? Or did the court basically retreat when it was faced down by Congress? There's no way of knowing. So how does all this stuff apply? This new, how did the court say that Section 2 applies to Arizona's two particular provisions? Justice Alito, writing for six justices, no extra credit for guessing who they were, made several important moves that had the effect of pulling many of the teeth of Section 2. First, he focused on two words in Section 2 that no one had ever really thought important before. 
not to how the circumstances, not the dole for visa, all that, that's where people had thought the action was. But he said that the truly critical words in one sense were in that, okay? Now, this had the effect, and no, you can't remember exactly how I read the statute, but don't worry, I'm not gonna read it again. Uh, this had the effect of moving the inquiry largely away from whether the process was equally open under the totality of the circumstances test, which is what people thought it was about, uh, to whether minorities had equal opportunity to participate in the political uh, process. So we go from equally open to equal opportunity. Slight difference, but one I think was very important and will be going forward. Then he went on to hold what circumstances counted and ended up miles away from the register factors. To Justice Alito, size matters. Right? Mere inconveniences cannot be enough to demonstrate a violation of Section 2. And you have to look at the relative size of any disparities. Basically, small differences shouldn't count. He also then said that 1982, the year that the amendments were passed, is a baseline, definitely one and possibly two important ways. First, he said the extent to which a practice differs from a quote-unquote standard practice in 1982 matters, meaning that if it was around in 1982 and people were applying it, eh, not so important. Second, he said how much the burdens imposed by the practice differ from the burdens imposed by other 1982 practices might make a difference too. So even if something was new, meaning not around in 1982, but it didn't impose burdens greater than, or much greater than things that were around in 1982, section two might not really care either. Now it's unclear where this comes from. It's not in the text of the uh, 82 amendments. And the 82 amendments were presumably adopted because Congress thought that an intent requirement not reach some objectionable practices existing in 1982, not just ones sometime in the future. Justice Lito said you have to evaluate the voting system as a whole, not just individual features. So if a state is maybe good over here and bad over here, right, you don't worry too much about the bad part. It's just this counterbalance in some way about by the good. And finally, Justice Alito said, the strengths of a state's interest matters, and the prevention of fraud, even without any proof that there's a problem or that a practice is particularly likely to promote it, is a, quote, strong and entirely legitimate state interest. Now, there are also things that didn't matter very much to the opinion, at least not so much, and you got it. You, heard, you know what those are, I'm sure. The register factors. Right? Of those, only the past discrimination and the continuing effects of that discrimination matter, and he'd suggest that it might have to have been intentional. So Justice Alito has managed, masterfully managed, I think, to flip the original understanding of the 1982 amendments on their head. Whatever you think about the result, you have to admire his technique. It's really amazing. Now, the same also goes for his handling of the question of intent. Now, what's interesting here is not so much that he overturns this Ninth Circuit, right? That happens all the time. But how he does it. Uh, in his analysis, he doesn't even mention Rogers versus Lodge, the case in which the court had said that intent in these cases could be satisfied by the registers factors. He just applied Arlington Heights. And that, effectively, that had the effect of overruling Rogers without even according it the courtesy of an invention. So where do we stand now? 
I want to suggest to you that Brnovich is a kind of bookend for Shelby County versus Holder, another case decided in 2010, which many of you probably have heard about. In that case, the court effectively deactivated Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act preclearance requirement by holding that its coverage formula was unconstitutional. In practice, Section 5 was more important than Section 2. But the court said, don't have to worry because we have Section 2 in the background, and that can backstop it even if we take Section 5 away. Not going to work, I don't think, at this point. Now, it's clear it's stupid for the DNC to have brought this case. And to, when it filed, uh, uh, but think about how the world was different when it was filed. And that was 2016. And it was probably anticipating a very different Supreme Court. Anyone remember when people thought that Hillary Clinton might have been president? Right? Uh, but it's clear why the DNC did file the case. It thought that it was really important. And actually that small differences matter especially when small differences are stacked one on top of another. If the precinct and ballot handling rules, for example, made only a 0.3% difference in Arizona, which is very, very small, that would have tied the 2020 presidential result in Arizona, right? So these small differences do matter. But increasingly, these small changes come in large packages voter along with things like voter ID requirements, odd registration windows, early voting restrictions, vote drop-off requirements, not to mention uh, practical matters like insufficient funding of election administration, which leads to different waiting periods for different type of people at the polls. Okay. Now, the next frontier, I think, of voting rights litigation after Brnovich is going to be voting administration. Uh, and you've seen some moves of this already in Georgia in particular. And I don't see how Section 2 after Brnovich is going to do any work there at all. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, we'll see. Jump on. All right. The, I think we're running out of time if I'm reading the clock right. Um, so I, I'll just do one case. Um, Roman Catholic Diocese versus Cuomo. And in this case, uh, the court granted emergency relief to two houses of worship in New York. Uh, who sought uh, relief from New York's uh, maximum occupancy limits during uh, the pandemic, which treated, um, which cap set a cap on occupancy for houses of worship, but exempted certain essential secular businesses from those um, caps. So the, so the, the uh, Catholic Church and the uh, synagogue in this case said that you, the free exercise clause, if it means anything, means that you can't treat houses of worship worse than uh, you must treat them uh, at least as well as you treat secular businesses. Uh, and the court agreed uh, in a 5-4 per curiam decision. Uh, and this was a really big deal coming out of the pandemic uh, and the various COVID restrictions uh, and how they applied to uh, the free exercise clause. And to explain why, we have to go back to the beginning of the pandemic uh, in May of 2020, two months after we all went home. Uh, we had another case that was very similar called South Bay Pentecostal versus Newsom. And that was a California occupancy limit, did very much a similar thing, capped occupancy except for uh, certain secular essential businesses were exempted. So houses of worship said we're treated uh, uh, less good than uh, these secular businesses and so um, we, should be, uh, we should be free from this law. Uh, in that case, um, 
There was no, so there was, uh, four justices would have granted emergency relief, five would not. The chief wrote a solo opinion in that case. And the solo opinion, joined again by nobody, uh, explained that uh, the standard for seeking emergency relief at the Supreme Court pending appeal is that the, and I quote, the legal rights and issues are indisputably clear, even then, and even then, uh, relief should be granted sparingly and only in the most critical and exigent circumstances because uh, the COVID-19 pandemic created dynamic and fact-intensive uh, subject matter, sub, uh, subject to reasonable disagreement, but that should be trusted to the state legislature. That was a reasonable approach, right? And, and, but, but remember what this approach was, what the standard is, it's the standard for seeking emergency relief at SCOTUS. That's not how the lower courts used it. They took that and turned it into a rule of uh, constitutional review uh, in all things COVID, free exercise, free speech, uh, Eighth Amendment, uh, prisoner, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, the quality of their conditions. Uh, conditions. Thank you. <laughs> um, there are speedy trial rights, mass mandates, voting mandates. It even showed up in disputes between state and local governments about who had a particular power. Uh, it was it was uh, uh, something of something of, of chaos sort of ensued, uh, where where some houses of worship had sometimes won uh, pre South Bay, after South Bay they always lost, um, and so this South Bay opinion took a sort of super precedent, and uh, and um, which is very interesting because not only is it you know a, a shadow docket case, it's a solo opinion on denying uh, emergency relief, it's not really clear what the precedential value of that is. There's sort of an ongoing debate about that right now. I think that the weight of that debate, correct me if, if I'm wrong, but I think the weight of that debate tips towards these are not precedent. Um, but regardless, uh, it had become that. So then you had Roman Catholic Diocese, um, really what changed is Justice Barrett comes to the court uh, and flips Justice Ginsburg's vote in South Bay. Uh, and now you have to treat um, uh, houses of worship at least as well as you treat uh, secular businesses. So one question remains, you know, what, what, so why did the lower courts run with this? Why it's not clear that the, that the chief's opinion was precedent. Uh, I think that part of it is, you know, you had no guidance at all. You were sort of in a, in a, in a brave new world uh, with the COVID pandemic. There hasn't been an emergency of this nature that has involved the courts to such an extent for decades. Uh, so they were sort of desperate for guidance. I think there was the, the, the sort of falling into the trap of uh, where, where words like, you know, the Constitution doesn't cease to exist in an emergency or the government has no more powers in an emergency than the Constitution grants it during uh, non-emergencies. I think those sort of become distant uh, memories that don't have a clear application, and so you've got courts sort of reaching, uh, sort of in desperation and lack of guidance to, to uh, uh, deference to state legislatures and state governments on this issue. Uh, but so now you have it, that, that's where things stand now. Uh, uh, one last fun tidbit I thought about the case was um, in the, the, the dissents, especially in Justice Breyer's dissent uh, in this case, essentially they said, look, these exigent circumstances still exist, we must give a great deal of deference to state legislatures. Um, but Justice Breyer described the Chief Justice's South Bay opinion as our opinion. He said, we held this. And I thought to myself, I'm not sure you did. Uh, but that's where you have it. So where we go from now, uh, Justice Gorsuch in his concurrence said, uh, sort of laid out 
where we are, which is to say that um, even if uh, the rationale existed in South Bay, uh, sort of the emerging emergency that we have now, we're now into our second year of the pandemic. Uh, we are back safely into the realm of uh, the Constitution has not gone on a vacation. Uh, and so that's where we stand. Uh, I'll leave it at that. I won't, uh, I won't bring up my last case since we're out of time. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.